When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are times this behavior seems almost pathological, uh, the, the pattern of falsehoods. He's always in the moment just sort of reacting um, and trying to get reactions. How, how loyal are you to the president? And that's how you're being judged. So if you have a more nuanced position, some will consider you, you know, a, an infidel or a traitor. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So, as you all probably know, or wait, you don't know, because who cares, but I dressed up like Natalia Veselnitskaya for Halloween. Nobody out trick-or-treating recognized me, except Paul Manafort, who was wearing prison stripes. He recognized me because, of course, we met at Trump Tower that time in June of 2016, when Don Jr. and Jared Kushner were also there to talk about repealing the Magnitsky Act. Anyway, I keep my eye on Natalia, and today, after denying she was an agent of the Russian government, she had her hand forced and admitted she's a full-on informant, that's what she said, and has been since 2013. 2013, 2013, 2013, I swear that sounds familiar. Miss Universe, Trump in Moscow, something about that glamorous Muscovite hotel that showers its guests in splendor. Now, remember, Veselnitskaya met with Glenn Simpson the day after the Trump Tower meeting on a separate issue. This one had to do with Trumpcast frequent guest Bill Browder and the whole Prevazon case. He was a witness for the prosecution, and Veselnitskaya and her overlords in Moscow were determined to discredit him. But he was also an exponent for the Magnitsky Act, which is what Natalia Veselnitskaya met with the Trump campaign in order to ask them to work on repealing with her. But what if Veselnitskaya was meeting with Glenn Simpson for another reason, not just the Prevazon case? What if she, like Simpson, was playing both sides of the street? What I'm saying is, what if she had helped inform the Steele dossier and had planned in her meeting with the Trump campaign officials to both kind of give them a carrot that she had dirt on Hillary Clinton, but also imply she had a stick that she had dirt on Donald Trump? It's just a theory. It's just a thought. It's just wanton speculation. But it's something to think about. So coming up, we'll be talking about none of this. Instead, we'll be talking to The New York Times' brilliant Amy Chozik about her new book, Chasing Hillary. But first, it's been a little over a week since Comey's new book came out, and the RNC still can't find the right website to discredit him. Domain registration. This is Rick. Hi, Rick. This is uh, Michael from the Republican National Committee. We spoke yesterday. Oh, that's right. Hey. About the lioncomey.com website. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're just brainstorming ways, obviously, to discredit uh, James Comey and the lioncomey.com hasn't caught on. So we're just, we want to buy, I know we bought a bunch yesterday. I just want to buy a few more domains from you that the RNC brainstormed. So just whenever you're ready, I'm just going to. Yeah, I have the list of ones you already bought and I'm going to just add all the new ones to it and they'll all just uh, 
all just be together here. Okay, and we've brainstormed a bunch, so just let me know if any of these are repeats of what we already have. But okay. um, can we do, and these are all one word, comeyatmebro.com, comey-morelikephony.com. Okay. Comey is a big fat liar, all one word there, dot com. Comey, comey, pants on fire. Okay, I think we got. I think that's one we got yesterday. Oh, okay. Can you read me what we had yesterday? Uh, yeah, we have um, uh, slimycomey.com, uh, slimercomey.com, sixfooteightoflies.com, handwritten notes are for liars.com, don't trust memos.com, a higher loyalty but higher like high on drugs.com. I like that one. Uh, yeah, there's a few at the bottom here that they added last minute. Loyalty pledge, smoyalty pledge.com. I like that. Did you did you get dumbcomey.com, comey is bad all one word.com, comey lied.com, benedictcomey.com. Mm-hmm. If you see comey, say comey.com. Comey is as comey does and he does bad stuff all one word.com. Mm-hmm. Not a lion comey.com. So that's we have lion l y i n comey and there's some confusion. Can you just do not a L-I-O-N, Comey.com. Comey is as bad as Hillary.com. Comey is worse than Hillary.com. Comey equals McCabe.com. Comey is dumb.com. Comey don't play that.com. Comey does play that.com. Of course, depends what that is there. No one likes Comey.com. And Comey is just like the chorus of The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel.com. Got that. Do you yep. think people will get that? Because it's Lila Lie, Lila Lie, Lila Lie, Lila Lie. I think so because you also got li la li la li la li la li la li la li dot com and it redirects to the other one. Great. Yeah. And you also don't don't forget you also got Comey Island where the rides are lies dot com. Ice cream Comey where the cone has a hole so it leaks all the time dot com. Do you think that one is too long? Um it didn't fit on a page, but uh honestly I think it's okay. And all these redirect to the same place, right? They all do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaky liar, potato leak, soup of lies. They all go to the same page. That's great. All right. Thank you so much. And you can send us a bill. We'll probably, honestly, we'll probably have more tomorrow. Okay, great. Today's sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Weltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Amy Chozik is a writer at the New York Times. Her new book is Chasing Hillary. Amy, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me. So you're catching me in kind of a bad mood, which I just told you, because for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this kind of low-level prosecution on Trumpcast. It's like we found a body and the bride was shot in the face on November 8th, 2016. Um, and since then, we've been trying to figure out who did it. So did racism do it? Did James Comey do it? Big talk about that. What about Putin, Mark Zuckerberg, the Trump syndicate? Um, what about the He-Man Woman Haters Club, right? Mm, yeah. Um, but now we're kind of asking, did the New York Times do it? And this is, you know, a subject close to both of us. I was at the Times for eight years, and uh, and you're still at the Times. And I think in the very beginning of your book, Chasing Hillary, about covering Hillary Clinton, you say you had an almost worshipful, or you almost worshipped the Times all out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for one second about Times worship and mm-hmm. what that feels like, because I think that that, to the, you know, critics, at least the critics of the Times on Twitter, they imagine 
that there's a like cult like feeling there. <laughs> the chip was implanted. The chip was implanted yeah. and that we can't say a word against it. You know, I yeah. did a panel with Jill Abramson, the former executive editor, and even she who had you know had a rough exit from the Times is hesitant to say anything publicly against it. So let's talk about that like weird omerta without at the same time violating the omerta by <laughs> while showing that we understand critics of the times, like with our great largesse. Right. I mean, my my times worship, and I have a chapter in the book about how much I struggled to get into journalism. I moved to New York from Texas with no job, no apartment, stack of clips from the Daily Texan, and I was like literally dropping them off at publications that I wanted to work for. And it was... You sound like the global elite to me. It was humiliating. It was humiliating. And actually, my my one of my biggest humiliations was at the times. I went to the old times building. I was supposed to meet with a political reporter who happened to like know a friend of my sister's and she said can you have coffee with my little sister she can't and I and I wear a suit that I got at the outlet mall always wear a suit in the I wore a I did suit too. I wore a suit and I had my clips in like a trapper keeper like a leather trapper of course. keeper and was one of your skills Microsoft Word mine was oh completely <laughs> completely HTML sometimes <laughs> proficient in Spanish yes um and I waited and waited and waited, Oops. and she never showed. And the security guard eventually said, politely, I'm sorry, but, you know, you can't hang out in our lobby all day. Whoa, and so well being, like, escorted out of the lobby of the Times <laughs> and then working there and not just working there, but being put on this beat where I was covering potentially the first woman president, like, the worship had been built up. I think, of course, people like grow up in Manhattan, read the Times all the time, so they have a Times worship in a different way. Yeah, I had had it like, like holy shit! I never thought I would get here, or get. Or they let me. They actually let me in the building. It was sort of like this complex chip on my shoulder um, that I had, and like, so I completely worship the place. So Still when I, when I first got mm-hmm. there, Al Siegel, mm-hmm. who was then the sort of Phil Corbett of his day, mm-hmm. sort of standards editor, mm-hmm. one of the AMEs, um, said, "What's your biggest fear?" coming here. He's sort of like we sort I sort of had an orientation or like hazing ceremony yeah. with him. And I remember mine. It was that I would make mistakes. Mm. I was really terrified mm-hmm. of making fact mistakes because I was mm-hmm. used to magazines where you could work with a fact checker. Right. What was yours? My biggest fear. Um, failure. I mean, I had like I had heard a lot of things. I was at the Wall Street Journal and they tried to keep me and one of the ways they tried to keep me was to warn me about what a snake pit uh, the Times was, and, ah. they, and the journal is a really nice place, and that you know your colleagues will. There's going to be a lot of elbow, sharp elbows, mm-hmm. and you're going to. And so I was, I was really afraid of like fitting in at the Times, actually, and like you know with the sharp elbowed people I'd heard about, who some of who some of whom became very good friends. But but I think I was afraid. You know, you go to that cafeteria, and like you oh, really yeah. like you're back in high school. In the you're old like, building, yeah, 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 in the new building too. But you're like, oh, there's a cool table, and are they going to invite me to sit with them? And um, and so I think I was, I. I think I was scared of that, that I'd mourn that it was a that it was a snake pit. And did you discover that it was a snake pit? Uh, no, I mean, I didn't. I, I obviously really competitive, but um, but and there's like everyone's fighting to get on the front. I have in the book, it's like as much as we talk about digital first, the six most beautiful words in the English language are they want it for the front. I guess that's five <laughs> words they want it for. The, yeah. So uh, page. It, yeah, the front, six. the front page <laughs> <laughs> above the fold, preferably. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I there was there was definitely com- competition. But um, but, you know, I made I made really good friends there. I mean, I, I would say something of um, my worship was that there were I really really liked the hardcore news I'm gonna say news people but newsmen mostly who had come up as um clerks Mm -hmm. and also had institutional memory I loved that stuff and I love some of the old-fashioned part of it and then I loved that there's no way that you know a percent tiny fraction of what 
the Times knows because you have people whose beat is ISIS. You have someone right. who, you know, who knows every single thing right. about City Hall and every assistant mayor from 1920 and whatever. And so it just seems like this incredible resource. Mm-hmm. So do you think that worship, though, could can cloud your sense of the Times' place in a media ecosystem? Um, I hope not, because I think that, you know, no one loves the. We were just talking about David Carr. Yeah. Our, our friend and the, the media col- late media columnist. But, you know, no one loved the Times more than him. He's actually the one who a couple days after I'd gotten there said, have they implanted the chip yet? You know, oh, yeah. we'll need to be implanting the chip. Um, and no one loved it more than him. And he also was really hard on the Times when he thought that we made mistakes because he thought that was ultimately good for the paper, that readers crave self-reflection. And uh, and he knew he could be you could be a critic as well as a as a worshiper. So your book is, um, you know, we talked on this show about James Comey's book. Mm-hmm. You and I were just talking about it a little bit. James Comey is like Comey agonistes in his book. He's mm. he's so morally serious, and mm-hmm. um, in telling the story of his life, it's the story of like moral crucible after mm. moral moral crucible. It's like he gets teased in school. You know, he he loses a child. Wow. Um, each time, it's a, it's an opportunity for him to like reevaluate his first principles, and all of that goes into informing how seriously he took the 2016 election and his mildly nauseating role in it. Um, (laughs) You um, are also quite self-reflective. So in this book, but Mm -hmm. I I think I said to you before we started where he has tragedy, you have something like irony. It's um, very funny and a lot of memoir. And it's not just a chunk of prose stuff. Oh, I'm you glad. Know. I'm glad. Some some right wing website called it fear and self self loathing on the campaign trail. Well, that's the other thing <laughs> is I, I don't liked. know that you're, there's like <laughs> as much hair. Sh- I know you like took some grief for mm-hmm. apologizing too much, and uh, I think don't apologize so much is probably second only to smile more. As far as something like <laughs> a right mansplainer can tell it's me, right up there. Um, <laughs> But apologize all you want. Um, I let's talk about the let's talk about the memoir component okay. of the book. So, for instance, you connected onto Hillary. You started having dreams about her. Oh yeah. And what was that like? You know? I mean, we all all the girls in her press corps who covered her for so long would dream of. We would share our Hillary dreams. Um, I mean, I would wake up and try to. I'd tell my husband, and he'd be like, "He's Irish." He'd be like, "For fuck's sake, Amy! Like, enough with the Hillary dreams, you know." <laughs> but like, we would have. I mean, so I had all this anxiety. It's a thread in the book that of of having a baby. Right. You know, I was 34 when Jill Abramson put me on the beat in 2013. And it was like, but I don't want to I can't have a baby now. I want to cover this possibly the first woman president for the paper of record. And and so I had all this anxiety. So like Hillary and I and some of my dreams would be like, I think the 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 like fertility anxiety mixed with the campaign anxiety. And we were like in one of the dreams I explained in the book, we were like shopping at a Zara. I think it was yes. either a Zara or a mango. It was yes. in Spain. And in Spain. You we said, were in you Spain. Said, but it, whether it was a Zara or a mango, <laughs> it was in Spain. Right. It was in Spain. And we were like chatting from underneath the, you know, the dressing room door. And I was like, these pants are my size and they won't fit. And, and Hillary kept telling me I'm pregnant. And I was like, I'm not pregnant. I'm just fat from being on the campaign trail. And we had this like back and forth. But um, it's really sad. I mean, the less kind of the more Hillary ignored me on the campaign trail, the more of like an imperial hold she had on my brain. And I would have these dreams. Oh, it was really sad that after the election, I had this dream that we were like riding in a 
press van to a Trump rally with Justin Trudeau between us. Uh, Hillary, Hillary really likes handsome men. That's one of the threads in the in the book. We were like knee-to-knee in this press van with Justin Trudeau between us. What was he like? He was so so <laughs> handsome. When your dreams, so handsome, <laughs> so so handsome. So and then also you said this thing that I can't forget, which is that you used to get blowouts, uh, uh, you know, on a regular basis, which I think people think of as extra basic and glossy and, you know, <laughs> elite. But in fact, at least w- the way I do it, it's just a way to never wash your hair. Oh, yeah. It's been a, a while for me. Yeah. With this one. Yeah, All right. Stretching good. it out for it looks beautiful dry for, shampoo <laughs> for listeners at home. Yeah. But <laughs> so you but then you you were worried about getting blowouts lest she not recognize your curly hair yeah i mean like i have extremely curly hair and like this mane of curls that like and when you're looking at like 50 reporters staring at you in a scrum yeah like i feel like my hair did stand out and whenever i had a blowout i mean she didn't do a ton of press conferences but there were a few times where like i felt like i couldn't i wasn't seen in the press scrum um okay she didn't have a ton of press conferences no. you probably know that's where an I'm- understatement you probably know where I'm going with oh, this, though. The UN press conference? No. Oh. The time you told um, Donald Trump that she didn't have oh. a lot of press conferences. What, ha- that was what a happened? Mistake. Well, Trump called me. He had heard that I, I watched um, eight seasons of The Apprentice. Um, oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Because not a lot of political reporters no, I know are really yeah. watching The Apprentice. You know, David Carr, big fan of The Apprentice. Big fan. Yep. And I was like, the country thinks he's this character. But I think if you didn't watch, you were like, all those bankruptcies, what are you talking about? Right. You know, if you're like you're a New like, Yorker. What? So the New He's Yorker... very important. He sits at a huge <laughs> desk. Because <laughs> he determines your career. He has a helicopter. Um, so um, I don't know how he had heard this, but he called me partly to comment on a story I was working on and partly with, like he would always be like, so do you think Schwarzenegger is going to be as good as me? Mm. And I... Um, Strong question. Thanked him. Yeah, strong. Policy. Difficult. Question. Difficult yeah. question to Wonky. answer. <laughs> so um, this and I, uh, yeah, and I thanked him for calling me and I said, you know, thank you for calling me. I've been covering Hillary for eight years, nine years, whatever it was at that time. And she's never, you know, called me out of the blue like this. <laughs> Shut up. Never called me out of the blue. Okay, zip it. I, I know. Hear stop you talking. Say. I should stop talking. <laughs> I should have stopped talking. Um, and, and he said, and, and then he said, well, when was the last time she t- she talked to you? And I, I think I said, like, I think she had a press conference. It's been like, I don't know, six months. It's been a while, you know. And he was like, and she doesn't have the stamina. And I was like, what? No, she's got a lot of stamina. <laughs> you know, we can't yeah. we can't keep up with her. And he was like, no, she doesn't have the stamina to talk to the press. And I was like, uh, okay, well, thanks for, you know, it's good, good uh, talking to you. And then a couple of days later, he started, you know, saying, you know, how Hillary's hiding. It's been 260 days since her last press conference. So I can't say whether I planted that in his head, but get, I certainly you, so was you like... supply to talk. Was a, like, a talking point. I don't know, you know, definitively if he heard that from me, but I was like, why did you I You know, say I think they caught the Golden Gate killer today, and now we have caught the Hillary killer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, so do you feel like, I mean, are we allowed to even ask you now? Did you want her to win? Um, I don't know. I mean, the country is so polarized and everyone is so partisan that like nobody really believes me when I'm like I I was I I kind of like seeded the ability to get excited you know I remember covering Obama in 2008 and all these crowds were so swept up and I was like really detached and that was that was the first I I covered Hillary's primary and then Obama and the general but it was the first campaign I'd covered and and I realized like I just kind of like oh I kind of see him for who he is, and I'd see it. I couldn't get. I thought, oh, I, I was sort of like almost envious of people who could get so excited about politicians because I think when you cover them, you see like good, bad, and ugly, mm-hmm. and it's like impossible to get so swept up. Yeah, it's funny because 
I really could not tell you who people I worked with at the times in the even in the culture department where there was a little more freedom talking about who you were going to vote for. Yeah. Um, I really couldn't tell you which way they voted. And a lot of them don't vote. A lot of them don't vote. And once you get accustomed to I remember pretty soon after 9-11, I ran into um, Jeff Greenfield, you know, and Mm -hmm. I said, um, how are you doing? Because everyone was asking each other that in New York, you know, how are you doing? And he said about the story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, 9-11 was a story. Right. Hillary was a story. Right. Her setbacks were stories. Right. And um, it becomes a clinical, almost cynical detachment. Yeah. I would say, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, people asked me, like, how did you feel the Javits Center? And I was like, yeah. what are you talking about? I just was thinking about the the TikTok of how she lost, and we got to get that in the paper, and I've got to get into the concession speech. They're only letting 10 reporters in. Like, I was just in, like, news mode. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. people don't believe that because you're surrounded by people like bawling and you're and also your my life had like suddenly like, oh, we're not moving to Washington, you know, like you're yes. like, but I was just in like write the story mode, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Trumpcast was in um, we still have jobs mode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing is, you know, back to the apology, apologizing and then I want to get into the apology that you issue in the book. Yeah. Um, Michael Wolf made a bunch of just fact mistakes mm-hmm. I mean stuff that your checker would have caught in mm-hmm. a heartbeat you know he didn't have to like he didn't say anything about them that, you know? yeah and uh it's and so I, funny one of my friends was like you just pretend you have a penis through this thing you just <laughs> pretend you have a penis I'm how's like, it going okay <laughs> <laughs> with your new with your new baby yeah, exactly your, yeah um so the apology James Comey, I'm trying to think if he said I'm sorry not exactly mm-hmm. but he you know he certainly is um has all kinds of worries about his role in yeah. um, in the election, and uh, and Mark Zuckerberg has said those golden words that everyone seemed to crave from him. I'm sorry, and uh, Hillary herself has apologized for faults and flaws in her campaign. She was pretty emphatic about, you know, I really liked working with all, you know, my campaign was great. The mis- you know, the mistakes were mine, and mm-hmm, she even owns mm-hmm. up to character flaws. You take your own very Amy Chozik approach Mm. um, where you almost exaggerate your culpability Mm. um, in the chapter memorably called, I want to be sure I get it right, (laughs) how I became an unwitting agent of Russian intelligence. Um, So how did you come to write that chapter and that sentence? Right, right. I mean, this was something... I was writing the F train to the newsroom. I didn't have a new assignment yet. I was like in the post-election fog, like a lot of us were. Um, And I'm reading this Pulitzer-winning story from our Washington bureau uh, explaining how the Russians had pulled off the perfect hack Mm -hmm. on the DNC and Podesta's emails designed to uh, weaken our democracy and elect Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading, I'm like engrossed in this story, this TikTok. And I get to this paragraph that says, you know, turning the media, including the Times, who covered the leaked emails into de facto instruments of Russia intelligence Mm -hmm. and that line just like even reading it now i like get the chills because it really stopped me in my tracks of like oh wow i was a de facto instrument of russian intelligence Mm. um and uh and that was the thing that stood with me the most of like looking back on coverage and i don't think there's like an easy answer it's not like oh we shouldn't have covered the hacked emails it's not that it's just that like this is going to keep happening we know they that a foreign adversary We'll do this again, probably mm-hmm. in 2018, 2020. And so I feel like there are a lot of, you know, journalistic ethical questions about how to handle these stolen dumps of documents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's really newsworthy? What informs the public? 
We should have those discussions for sure. I mean, I found that to be an incredibly powerful chapter. And, you know, I said to you before we turned the mics on that um, Joey Ito runs the media lab at MIT and is on the board of the New York Times, told me the New York Times used to cover pawns of bad actors. Now they had become pawns of bad actors. That they, what did he say? They got played. Mm -hmm. Everyone got played. And he speaking as a board member. Mm. So he's, you know, part of that too. He also has this like wonderfully cold technical way of discussing everything that I mm. that I find interesting. I mean, it's as though he's not leveling a criticism exactly as much as observing mm -hmm. a reality. I think it goes without saying that we in the media got played. I mean, that false equivalence that our own, or, or let's not even call it false equivalence, our idea of writing without fear or favor, our idea of that there might be nonpartisan, a kind of nonpartisan reporting, our idea that the parties were sort of equally meritorious and, you know, had flaws and not, all kinds of things went into this. I mean, that's where I compare that. I think the Times and Comey have a lot in common, is that we had a lot of standing principles going into the covering the election, and all of them this was a kind of audit of everything we believe, you know? Mm. Um, and also, why should... I worry when we get defensive about the hack. You know, I I've passed on, I've said this on the show, I passed on um, misinformation, disinformation about Antifa once. Mm. And, um, you know, looking back at it, it was something the bots were pushing and it was something, you know, the false equivalence between neo-Nazis and Antifa made it both seem like they were violent radicals. And I bought it. You know, I just didn't kick the tires of it. But, I, right, I just have to say that, you know. And I have a sinking feeling, more than Comey's mild nausea, <laughs> when I think about that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you felt something of the same thing. Yeah, I think that's similar. I think it's similar to what I to what I felt when I read that sentence. But I but I also think I I don't have an easy answer. I mean, I think people have only read the excerpt and misinterpreted my argument as as like, oh, we shouldn't have covered information that's pertinent to voters. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying these are important ethical journalistic questions that should be discussed and debated. You know, and maybe the maybe the answer, I, I don't know the exact answer, but certainly like we didn't know as much as we know now during mm -hmm. during the campaign. And, you know, the more we would we know about a source's motivations and the more transparent we can be. Well, what about so what about the NSA warning? Because you did you did know something about. Right. Um, the NSA had said that the Russian hack was but the Russians were behind the DNC hack and that they were used and they yep. were going to use the media to get yep. them out there and actually said um, in classic NSA terms, don't don't publish this, don't amplify mm, this mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. this is part of information warfare. Right. What did you were you alerted to the existence of that memo, that letter? No, we knew that the intelligence agencies had given this memo about the about the DNC hacks. Right. But we didn't know about the Podesta. We didn't know where the Podesta emails. But had did come you from. know about the lines in the letter mm. that said that y the media ought not to? Amplify? I don't. Rem I don't remember. Okay. Because two things I get are. At least when I was at the Times, when Bill Keller was mm -hmm. handling the first WikiLeaks, uh, I don't know what he called it, yeah. data data dump. They were always called diplomatic cables. Mm -hmm. Julian Assange came yeah. to the office yeah. and met in the executive lunchroom or whatever that is, little yeah. private place with Keller. And something happened. And all of a sudden, we were in the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg business. We felt like flying high. 
and published some of those cables, excerpts from those cables. Obviously, Assange was in a different position. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, as we now understand it, you know, on the, really on the payroll of Russia. Mm-hmm. But that was, con- and, and, and yes, we were warned, he was warned, the paper was warned, that this would cost American lives. Mm-hmm. It's the NSA's job always mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. media loose lips and there's leaks everywhere. And this mm-hmm. is all like mm-hmm. making it so the Pentagon can't do its job. And it's the, it's, you know, following Ellsberg and everyone else before him, it's our job to say, fuck you, <laughs> yeah. don't care. So that I got. Define the NSA, especially on a WikiLeaks issue, I got. Second thing that I also understood is the sources are not always, uh, you know, people of sterling character. They almost never are, in yeah. fact. Yeah. And the same way that, you know, you could trust Christopher Steele, even though he was circuitously paid by the Democrats, um, you know, that the, the sources are are never squeaky clean. Yeah. They're another drug dealer or they're yeah. whatever. So it, just because the, it was a Russian source, that's no reason not to use it right. if the information is good and it was indeed hacked DNC emails. It wasn't a fraud. If the NSA had given you a warning, also no reason not to publish in the ethic of the Times, in the mm-hmm. ethic of the, of the New York Times. And they always exaggerate how much danger this is going to do. So that that strongly warded part, part of this is warfare. But the thing that really does feel like it must weigh on people is imagining that they're instruments of a propaganda campaign by anyone. Right. You know, that just, I don't know, that just feels like emasculating to me, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think it's not so much a question, like, sources are often unseemly when you when you pull back mm-hmm. the curtain these sources all have motivations, and that's why you have to confirm everything and fa- obviously report mm-hmm. it on your own. Um, but yes, the idea that we're kind of—I think it was the unwitting, you know. Yeah. I think if you know you're, you know what you know, and you make those informed decisions. And certainly, there were conversations, you know, happening above my pay grade that I wasn't privy to mm-hmm. in the decision to cover these emails. So I'm only speaking for myself and my own coverage. And like looking back, I'm like, oh, I was an unwitting agent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you may have, I, I'm, tr- I'm, I don't, I'm, th- I'm like worried now for you using unwitting because that's a very Mueller word. I think you, you oh, may remember that he says right. unwitting and unwitting co-conspirators in a conspiracy, stateside co-conspirators in a conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's what he said existed. Oh, wow. um, you're definitely unknowing? not facing Can indictment. Can I say unknowing? You might say unknowing and also switch from agent to maybe asset or tool or asset. something. Asset sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the Americans or something. Exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't think um, I think your your um, scrupulousness on this and honesty is really admirable, admirable, and makes what's already a, a you know compulsively readable book still more interesting. Oh, thanks. I mean, I knew I couldn't write a memoir and be like everything we did was perfect. <laughs> Thank it all, you. It was all great. <laughs> Thank you so much for not doing that and for being here, Amy. <laughs> thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. We always love to hear what others think, so drop us a note at Real Trumpcast on Twitter. And while you're there, just hit that little blue follow button. Our handle's the best way to get in touch with us and keep track of all things Trumpcast. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Special thanks to Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman, who keep bringing the laughs on Trumpcast. And until next week, I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.